Just stop it. The run of the mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption, and Happy New Year. This is your host, KJ Helms, and we're here today to talk to an industry disruptor who has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest is a sought-after keynote speaker on transformation and innovation. He believes the future belongs to those who think differently, but not only that, they're bold enough to take charge, embrace, and shape what comes next. His consulting firm has created over $2.5 billion in revenue for many of the world's most well-known companies, and he's helped these organizations approach and conquer today's real threats of digital disruption. He's featured in Fast Company, Business Week, Fox News, you name it. He's coming to us live today from Connecticut. Please welcome our disruptor, founder of OutThinker Strategy Network, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you. Great, great intro, KJ. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. And you have such a cool name. Uh, I'll tell my mom. <laughs> so Kaihan, are you ready? Are you, well, I want to give our guests a little bit of data here because we have a lot of guys from, you know, innovatively disruptive companies, but we also have companies that have been around a long time that are really threatened by this digital transformation, right? Mm -hmm. And I call you sort of like a backwards disruptor. You're helping companies who have been around a long time that really see the threat of the mm -hmm. digital disruption and they have to transform themselves, right? Yes. Yes. So you're keeping this cycle of disruption going. So when in that particular framework and mindset, what is the most important, the main ingredient for disruption? Is you need new language. <laughs> Make it sound <laughs> because so language, simple. language shapes how we think, what options we see, and which options we choose. And when your language gives you an idea that makes sense from the could be a paradigm, but could be just a point of view that is embedded in your language. Um, you see an option, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, it, and the reason that it's disruptive is because it doesn't make sense to the other person. You know, Blockbuster could have bought Netflix and Yahoo could have bought Google. It's not about doing something your competitors can't do, it's doing something they won't do, something that they will ignore and laugh at, as Gandhi said. First, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. So it really begins. If we take it back, okay, they're gonna, they're not gonna copy me. First, they won't conceive of it, then they won't choose it, then they won't be able to commit to it. But it starts off with them being able to do it and not doing it, right? Now, why do they do that? Because it's inconsistent with some prevailing logic and belief. And the logic and belief is embedded in our stories and anchored then in our language. So when you introduce a new term, it starts shaping thinking. And so it is the asymmetry between the language, between the disruptor and the disrupted. 
even the word disruption, right? Even the word disruption didn't exist before 1990. It's true. Not in the way that we're using it today. Yes. Well, yeah, you're right. Right. Yeah. Not, not kind of business. It, it was redefined. You're absolutely right. Yeah. 19, I think it was 1990, Me. 1980 something. Yeah. When, when did, when, when was, um, uh, Clayton Christensen's like thesis that became a book? I want, I, I want to say that's the eighties. Yeah. Well, it's 1980. I just had someone on my podcast who he mentored and I should know that. So, but anyway, yeah. um, but I think, I think in the 1980s at the very beginning of the 1980s, that's when, um, um, uh, Porter, Michael Porter introduced the term competitive advantage. Before 1980, nobody talked about competitive advantage, right? So you see these terms getting introduced. They describe a phenomenon that we can't understand. You know, if you look at Thomas Kuhn's theory of scientific um, revolutions, first people notice there's an anomaly. Wait a second. This company is surviving for a long time, and, and we don't have the language to describe why that is. And then someone introduces a term. Oh, let's try competitive advantage. This is what competitive advantage is. Oh, I understand. Now what if I now I can do that, right? Um, it's like you want to screw something into the wall and you have a hammer. Oh, what do I need? My hammer's not working. Oh, here's a screwdriver. Oh, now I can do it, right? So then what happens is people start using the term competitive advantage and they start adjusting their practices and now they are acting to create competitive advantage. And I think disruption is the same uh, pattern that Clayton Christensen popularizes it in the way in, in, in business. And for a long time, it just explained what we saw. Why are these big companies that we were told had competitive advantages, sustainable competitive advantages, had scale, right? And now they're getting disrupted by smaller companies. How do I explain this? This doesn't fit our language. It doesn't fit our belief, right? And so there's something wrong with our language. What's the new term? Ah, okay. But then what happens is when that gets adopted, it changes behaviors. And I think that what he and the worm disruption, especially like incumbent disruption, what it is, is not a, it's, it's, it's not a truth. It's, it's, it's not um, a law. It is pointing out an unhelpful behavior. An unhelpful behavior? Yes. Meaning that it's point, it, it's saying, Hey, a big incumbent, why didn't you respond? Right. And now a whole army of Clayton Christensen followers, and other disruption followers, we go in and we understand what are all the different reasons why a company won't respond. Is it their beliefs? It's their commitment. It's the way they do resource allocation. It is the way they project the future. It's the way they're organizationally structured. It's their culture, it, it, all the habits. And then, and then we say, aha, oh, all these things are wrong. But I think that um, established companies are, have been working on those things. Right. And so just like, hey, just like the virus. Right. First, it was, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And then we said, wait a second here. We can we can create a vaccine. Oh, here are three vaccines. Oh, we can do treatment. Oh, masks work. Right. Oh, oh, social distancing works. Oh, testing works. Right. And then we can learn to adapt to the attack. And I think that that's what's happening now that, you know, if the virus in this metaphor is the small attacker. That the incumbent is has started learning how to wear masks and and um, and vaccine themselves. So I think that there's a lot of and, and the reason I like this is because you know most people work in large established companies, right? And actually, 
the uh, entrepreneurial um, propensity has been decreasing consistently for the last 15 years. There are fewer entrepreneurs, fewer people working for smaller companies, more working for big companies. Um, and so, and, you know, most of my, my, my wife works for a big company. A lot of my friends work for big companies and they're lovely people and they are um, thoughtful and creative and brilliant and they don't, you know, they, and they enjoy the environment of the safety of the consistency of the freedom of right. um, a large company. And so, you know, I think that that's been kind of my mission lately has been to inspire, ch ch challenge the idea that the disruptor is a white guy who graduates from college, goes to the West Coast and it's a small team that goes into a garage. Right. Those are all of our stories of the disruptors. That's, that's the Elon Musk. That's the Steve Jobs. That's the Richard Branson. No, not Richard Branson. Well, I we're guess, seeing but, yeah. a lot of disruptors come out of India now. Yeah. There's a yeah. lot of technology disruptors. I think that's sure. disrupting in itself, right? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but you're so anyway, talking about, about the them. incumbents and the main ingredient is language, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. New language. So it's kind yeah. of like, what's reality? The reality is the concept the conceptual understanding, the reality that's created conceptually that you can't yes. see that's intangible, that then goes into execution and becomes yes. reality, right? Right. Are you telling me that these incumbents and these companies, the ones that you've helped and even ones that you haven't, but have had to go through this challenge of, gosh, there's this threat of disruption and we need to disrupt ourselves or change ourselves. Mm -hmm. Are you telling me that what they've really had to do is just come up with a new language to communicate what they do? Because I know it's really hard to steer a big corporation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's, they're, they're really, I think language is the beginning and the foundation of most of un, unlocking most of the barriers. Um, but they're really like four bundles of barriers. There's, there's leadership, there's talent there's culture and there's structure. And by structure, I mean, organizational structure, like are there resources to fund experiments? Is there organizational freedom so people can collaborate across silos, right? Is there an incentive structure in place that encourages those behaviors, you know? Um, and so anyway, we, I could go into each of them, but, but you're right. It is a bit of a wicked problem because all of those four interact because leadership attracts talent, right? Right. Talent follows leadership. If you have great talent, great leadership, but you put them under structures that suppress their ability to coordinate innovation dies. If you have those structures, but you don't have a culture that encourages proactivity, market awareness, um, risk-taking, and autonomy, um, then um, eventually the innovation um, you know, you know, subsides. Kind of dies, right? It dies, yeah. 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 So you have these four pillars that when you're transforming a brand or pushing them into the future that's threatened by this disruption you have to go into those four main pillars yes to see if they're going to be able to um, have the trajectory to not be threatened by this is that right yes yes exactly well i think it's okay to feel threatened right 
Yeah, but not to be threatened, right? Um, you know, it's, it's okay it's, to feel threatened. It, I mean, yeah, it I feel is. threatened yeah. daily. I think it makes yeah. me a better business owner. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you know, the, only the paranoid survive. Um, I mean, given you know, the like, the whole pandemic, I, I love that yeah. analogy because it's very real right now, right? Mm-hmm. People look mm-hmm. back on this in history and they're going to go, oh yeah, but we're threatened every day and we have to come up with new ways, better ways to stay safe, survive. Yes, Yes. And, you know, and maybe incumbents didn't feel threatened and the term disruption and the interest in disruption is what woke them up to feeling threatened. I don't know. They're probably like stages of reaction, you know, a denial, then, you know, I forget what those terms are, acceptance and then problem solving, whatever. And so now, you know, but there's um, there now now is a good time because um, these established large companies, they, they do feel threatened, even though they're big and have huge buildings and lots of money and investors, they do feel threatened because they've seen that it can, it can, it can go away. Yeah. Uh, And things are changing. And you know, that new language that you're talking about, like disruptors have a language out there that's stirring up the consumer market, right? That consumer mm -hmm. market makes decisions today that, um, corporations now pivot on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The consumer market can coordinate itself in, in, in ways that give it power. And I think employees right now are finding that they can coordinate themselves. They can march in step and they can have more power without having to have a union, right? So companies are having trouble time, you know, recruiting people. And I think it's part because people are in mass saying, no, I don't want that. I want this. You know what I mean? And so, but that, that points to just an overall paradigm shift that, shift that we've been um, experiencing. They're kind of like five, I don't want to call them paradigms. Paradigms are a new consequence introduced and it is inconsistent with the prevailing paradigm and uh, the new paradigm takes over. And Thomas Kuhn says, it's usually, or it was a Max Weber, I think that said, uh, it's, and, and usually the new paradigm takes over because the people who grew up in the old paradigm die off and What's left are the people who grew up in the new paradigm. So I would say these are all, right? yeah, it, yes. For, for, yeah, for paradigm, but there, but, but there are concepts that aren't quite paradigms. You know, like um, this is maybe a little bit of a boring one, but um, uh, inventory terms. Uh, but there was a time when people didn't have the term inventory terms. So, and these, and these companies were growing and growing and growing and they were, they were, wow, we're growing fast, but we're running out of cash. What's going on? And then an accountant or someone came up with this idea of inventory terms divide. And then you can see how much cash you're burning and can you uh, uh, increase your inventory terms um, so that you carrying less inventory than, you know, so, but then that changes behavior, right? So yeah. one big, one, one concept that I think is bigger than a concept, maybe not quite a paradigm shift is what I call coordinating the uncoordinated. The idea that power less often comes from control, but more from coordination. So um, customers can coordinate themselves. Investors uh, you know, can coordinate themselves. Blockchain is the coordination of nodes that are coordinating ledgers. Um, platform business models are coordination are coordinating one or two or two two or three slot sides. Right. Um, all of that is an example of coordinating the uncoordinated. I think ecosystems are becoming the new basis of competition, and ecosystems are just a different way of coordinating. You know, it's and, you know um, it's really true. You mentioned ecosystems, right? And that's a big thing in networks. I mean, not networks networks, but in disruption, because, you know, eco networks, ecosystems, some get, they get shifted around, right? Right. Some get bypassed. 
some get left out. There's new ones that are created. Yes. Yes. And they compete with each other. You know, my yes. Miami's got this burgeoning technology ecosystem and everyone's been trying to create the tech ecosystem that will compete with Silicon Valley. Right. And so you've got Silicon Alley, you've got, I, I don't know what the other names are, but Silicon Berlin Bay, has theirs. and then yeah. I don't know what they're calling yeah. it in Texas, but uh-huh. uh, yeah. Yeah. And Texas is doing really well um, yeah. in terms of attracting yeah. technology opportunities. So we've got this new language, main ingredient, right? Yep. yep. Tell me what the status quo is um, it, sure. that this had this new language has to, I guess, disrupt or help these companies really face the digital challenge, right? What is the status mm-hmm. quo that that mm-hmm. needs help when these companies come to you? Well, the is the idea that that competitive advantage, the way you win is through competitive advantage, and you get competition from one of three ways: controlling inputs, owning the diamond mines, owning the oil. Mm-hmm having economies of scale so that you can produce a widget at a lower price than other someone else, right? Or customer captivity. You make it difficult or undesirable for people to leave. And so that is, those are the traditional three sources of competitive advantage. And there are different languages you use for that. You know, controlling a diamond mines is resource-based view is what strategists call it. I mean, economies of scale is economies of scale. Um, for customer captivity, you can call it customer centricity. You could call it compassistickiness, whether they're different terms, but those are kind of the three the, the language encourages us to look for those three sources of competitive advantage. And so what I've done is I looked at um, pairs of companies that are in similar industries of similar sizes, but one is outperforming the other. And I look at their how they describe their strategy in their public statements. And I code it. I have a, 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 a research analyst that I, work, that I work with, and we code how many times do they talk about competitive advantage. And so what I thought was you're going to find is that um, you know Walmart's doing great today, but you know, we, when we did this, they were under threat from Amazon. And you could see that Amazon talked, I, I thought that we were going to see that Amazon talked less about competitive, um, less about say scale than Walmart did. Cause Walmart's real advantages was scale. I can buy, you know, I can purchase from my vendors at a much lower price because I've got this huge scale. So I'm not going to buy 10, I'm going to buy millions from you, right? So give me at a lower price. And so, but what I found was really interesting is that Amazon talks about scale as much as, um, as, 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 as Walmart does. Really? But what they do is there are five other narratives that they, or patterns that they talk about. They talk more about the future. They talk about more, more about power from coordination, which we talked about. They talk more about what business we are in. They don't call themselves a retailer. I think the Bezos quote was, there is no physical analog to what Amazon.com is becoming. So what business you say you're in can lead to disruptive behavior. Um, and give you other examples of that. Zappos isn't in the shoe company, in the shoe business. It's a customer service Customer business, service, right? yeah. Right? Um, yes. That you also see this emerging, this emerging idea of you don't get to choose between making money and doing good. That's why so many IPOs this year, I think last year, three IPOs were B corporations. Um, and some of the coolest ones are. Um, so socially driven enterprise, multi-stakeholderism. And then the other one is um, creating things out of nothing creating new categories, creating new customers, creating new occasions, creating new needs, and not thinking within existing categories, right? So this particular language that you're looking for, right? You're looking for the the three things in their public statements that they're talking about, like, um, but 
what are you pulling out? Like with Amazon and say um, Walmart, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was the status quo that's normally happening. And then Amazon went beyond that, right? Or Walmart mm -hmm. did, it, mm -hmm. you know, in mm -hmm. their transformation, right? Yes, yes. Um, how did that go against the status quo and how did that help them? So, you know, I think that, um, I don't know, are you familiar with, with neuro-linguistic programming, NLP? You know, I've heard yeah. of it. Heard it. And yeah. every time I, I, every time I hear the word, I have to go look it up. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's a, yeah. But it's, yes. it's, it, it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's sort of social constructionism that your language shapes your world, shapes how you think. Right. So yeah. if you're working with an NLP coach and you say, um, uh, I know, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, you know, he or she, I have an NLP coach, you know, she'll say, um, well, what do you want? You hope it's sunny, right? And then what you're doing is in your mind, you're thinking of sunny um, and not thinking of rainy. This is a bad example because we can't control the weather. Um, but still, let's say, let's simple say, enough. I eat, good, similar, yeah. or I want to eat, I hope I don't eat ice cream tonight. Okay. You're, well, then I eat, eat ice cream. Yeah, right. <laughs> Ooh, I, I hope I eat broccoli tonight. You know, your mind is thinking of broccoli, right? So, you know, I think a, a shift that Walmart is making is viewing itself as an advertiser representing brands as opposed to instead a retailer. Of, instead of a retailer, instead of their um, main pillar that they've been known for is scaling, right? Yes. Right. Right. Interesting. And yeah. And, and, and they had to acquire some of that, right. They had to purchase, um, I forget who they, anyway, their, their, their e-commerce business is built off of a, the name is slipping me of the, of a name that they purchased. I know QVC. I also know pretty well that they bought Zulily, um, which was, um, a big acquisition for them. And that was part of their transformation. So then those people come in with these new ways of thinking, um, new perspectives, thinking right. about where advantage comes from. Advantage comes from, scale advantages now come from network effects and not from numbers of stores, for example. Interesting. Yeah. So you have a way of taking those public statements and going through them almost like an algorithmic formula, right? And mm -hmm. codifying them and pulling out, um, are you pulling out what the disruptors are saying and what are the key points? And then you help your clients work out this new language and mm -hmm. figure out where the market is going. I mean, I know I'm dumbing it down, but yeah, no, that's exactly, that's exactly right. Um, the kind of weird thing is that he used to talk a lot about that. I don't talk much about now because then it categorizes what I'm saying on in an unhelpful way in the listener is that my um, the catalog that I use for these patterns of language come from an ancient Chinese text called the 36 stratagems. And okay. I love this. Yeah. <laughs> so I, um, that's what my doctorate work was in. My first two books were translations of these 36 stratagems into business. And so they were written around 500 AD kind of built off of a thousand years of storytelling. And it'd be almost like if somebody collated, I don't know, all the stories of battles, political conflict in the United States. I don't know. It took all Ben Franklin's work and everyone's after, but a thousand years, we've only been around for 250 years. I'm talking about four lifetimes of the, of the United States distilled the lessons of competition distilled into these 36 phrases. Um, and that the, would the be badass. 
Yeah, right, yeah, right, right. Somebody did it for us. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the you know the 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 original. So so what I do is, um, I have this catalog of thirty six, and I read through a public statement. And whenever a company says an argument for why their strategy will be successful, I say which of these patterns or which pattern are they referring to. And that's a technique called narrative analysis. And then I turn the pros into data. And then I have someone else who does it as well. And, and we have to compare and make sure that there is enough agreement between our codings. And then you say, okay, let's look at the patterns of Amazon, the patterns of, of Walmart. You say, wow, look, Walmart mentions um, uh, economies of scale uh, 15 times in the last five years or it's going to be more than that, 45 times in the last five years of public statements, I'll bet you Am Amazon's going to mention it less. And what do I find? No, they mention it as much. They also mention economies of scale, but they also mention this idea of network effects and communities and, 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 um, and coordination, right? And they mention that statistically statistically uh, significant at a significant frequency above what um, the frequency with which Walmart mentions those. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You take this whole assumption away and you compare it down to the natural laws of the 36 stratagems, right? Yes. Yes. For thousands of years. And yeah. then does that help you find where your clients' holes are, like where they're going to be woefully inept, like where they can't embrace the change unless they what? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can do it that way. Um, it's, it's a, I haven't done this in a while, but I was working, um, let's say a big software company that was competing against another big software company, but not doing as well. Um, a big beauty company that was competing against another beauty company and they were doing okay. And what we did was we looked at the strategic patterns of each of them and their competition right? And came up with a playbook. And then you could say, well, how would, uh, I'm trying to think of an, I'm just trying to think of a, let's, let's, let's stick with the Amazon Walmart because I didn't okay. work with either of yeah. them. So Amazon would say, how would Walmart approach this opportunity? And so now you look at the idea through their playbook as well. You know, it's like getting in your competitor's head, Interesting. right? That's, a, that's one way to, to, you know, to use them. What I mostly do though now is I just use lots of patterns to generate lots of ideas so that when you say, okay, we're going to launch a new, whatever, a new podcast, right? Well, let's come up with a hundred ideas across what the positioning could be, how we would, what our pricing model would be, who would be in the company, what would our processes be, physical experience, I kind of have these eight Ps to look in. So um, you look across these eight Ps, you say, where's the next battleground? What can we coordinate? Two front battle, be good, create something out of nothing. Economies of scope, economies of scale. Um, uh, what's been abandoned? Um, what, 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 what won't our competitors respond to? All of these different patterns and they just uh, uh, trigger, tr trigger ideas. And so when you have a lot more, many, many, many more ideas, then there's more, there's a greater likelihood that you're going to have a really disruptive idea in that. So then you sort through them and choose. And then what comes out is a more disruptive strategy. And if that 
proves to work and people feel viscerally, wow, I did that. And now I just feel like I thought like Elon Musk. I just, that's what, that's the kind of thing that, 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 that Steve Jobs would have done. Wow. It works. Then you can get them hooked on using new language to brainstorm. Right. Um, so that that's 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 the process. But even if you just use it, you don't you don't incorporate the language into your own vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You don't adopt. You don't expand your playbook. Even if you just when you are brainstorming, strategizing, you're trying on these other patterns. Um, even then, if you're doing it consciously, you don't have to do it subconsciously. I guess is what I'm what I'm saying. It's so you're strategizing the, these other patterns and you come up with many different scenarios that yes. could be done. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Wow. Right. That sounds right. fun. It is fun. So it is fun. <laughs> do these companies have fun while they're doing this or is it very painful for them? You know, it, seems like it would be yeah. painful. Yeah. It's there are painful parts. There are painful parts. Um, but there are certain like tricks when you're facilitating to kind of get them around the painful parts. One of the biggest tricks is to first have them brainstorm on how to build the walls around their fortress to protect their core business before we start talking about new things and new markets and new products, right? Let's do that first. And then they have a sense of, okay, I've, you know, we've, we've, the, I see how we can patch up the walls around our fortress and our home won't be attacked. And then explore the ships that we're going to send out on the ocean and, and, and look for. That's really um, smart. Things. Yeah, I mean, because it, that is their power out. base. Yeah. You don't yeah, want it is to stop power what's yeah. working, right? Yeah. Um, you don't want to change yourself out of success or out of affluence, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If you, yeah, if, if you do, then you won't have anything to fuel the next thing, right? But if you don't go after the next thing, then eventually at the long run, everything becomes a toaster. In the long run, your core business gets commoditized. Um, and that's the key. That's what I was going to ask you. I'm so glad you you brought that up because eventually your core business gets commoditized, right? Yeah. So companies do need to reinvent themselves. Who are the early adopters? What types of companies are willing to confront and embrace and do something about this disruption, this transformation? Yeah. That's a, that's a tough question. We, we organized this chief strategy group, a peer group of chief strategy officers of mostly large enterprises, and they pick topics they want to talk about. And then we find a thought leader and we convene them in these round tables and they learn from each other. And, and, you know, Hey, how do you do it? Many of the challenges that they come up with are, you could really say point to this, um, what do we need to do to adapt? What, what are the ways to adapt? And I know, and I, I don't, I don't know that an answer yet exists, and I, I don't certainly I, I, I can't certainly characterize that the I can't I, I, I can't characterize that, but I can tell you it it, it 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 seems to me from all of our discussions it has something to do with organizational structure and about creating structures that allow agility. And there are different theories of how you can do this. There are five ways you could say the way people organize themselves, right? They organize themselves in, in hierarchies. Um, this is from Professor Tom Malone at MIT. Um, they, they, they organize themselves in hierarchies. They organize themselves in communities, democracies, marketplaces, mm-hmm. and ecosystems. And in any organization, you actually see pockets of, of, of many of them. You have little communities of like-minded employees. Um, at the top of your, you know, your board should sort of be a democracy. 
Um, you have an internal marketplace for talent. Who's going to get? Who wants to work for the for for what you know leader and that kind of thing? So um, you can start playing around with those. Now there's kind of two theories that I that I see. One is um, this idea of the um, uh, ambidextrous organization. Meaning the what? Idea, They're ambidextrous so, in what way? So the, the the what it technically means is that you have a left hand and you have a right hand. You have one side that is running the core business. And then you have a completely separate organization that is doing the new stuff. And so your the, the how you measure performance is you know ROI on one and learning in the other. Let's say um, how you organize are hierarchies versus looser teams on the other one. Um, some of your cultural norms are going to be different, but at the top layer, uh, and this comes from a guy. If you want to read more about it, a guy named Michael Tushman. He's at Harvard. He was at Columbia before. This is what he, he, his research says, this is the right structure. At the very top, you have a layer of leadership that are closely knit. And they're the ones that can make the mental flip from thinking like Walmart, thinking like Amazon, you know, and they can, they can get their heads around that. Because they're the visionaries typically, right? Maybe, maybe, right. Yeah. Yeah. And they can compartmentalize and yeah. Yeah. So that's so you have that's these you chief strategy officers, right? Yeah. And it seems to be from what you're saying is um, the companies that go into this, the companies that adopt this, like we have to transform, we're going to be commoditized. They they are looking at it from changing their organizational structure. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's those are the solutions that I'm seeing people interested in. Yeah, organizational structure. And you see companies are adapting their organizational strategies to remove these barriers. And, and you kind of see this new form of an organization, I think, emerging. The one that I, the company that is doing this most radically is a company in China called Hire. Hire. How do you is spell Hire? H A I E R. Okay. Here's what they did they, um, just, to, just so what they do is they sell appliances like washers and dryers and refrigerators. They bought GE appliances. After they got GE appliances, they were then 15 billion in revenue. That was five years ago. They're now 32 billion in revenue. So they've gone from 15 billion to 32 billion after that major acquisition. So this is so so, so that is primarily organic, right? Um, generated. And I don't know any company of scale that has you know, created that much in, in revenue growth, you know, in that short period of time. And if you ask them why it is, it's, they said, what we did was they, 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 they adopt this model called um, Rendendai um, is a, is what they call it. And um, it's a kind of a management model. They take, they take their organization, they broke it down to 4,000 micro enterprises. Each micro enterprise has a CEO and has people that report to the CEO. Now, you do kind of have a democracy in place because if the CEO is not doing a good job, his or her people could vote them out and replace them with a different CEO. Now, what happens to IT support and marketing, or maybe marketing would be you know, aligned that, but um, finance, right? Accounting, right? Those become micro enterprises as well. And they need to convince the micro enterprises that are market facing that they should use their services. And if companies, this, and, and if these micro enterprises says, you know what, I don't really like, uh, I don't really like the higher IT 
that IT division, I could go to a different IT division, or I could go outside and hi, and, and, and outsource somewhere else. So now everyone, there are 4,000 CEOs running around, right? It's an ecosystem um, within an ecosystem. And, and it's an ecosystem, right? Whoa. Isn't that, it's an ecosystem of demo, democratic hierarchies um, all coordinating together. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's so crazy. I have like yeah. a million cuss words I could say based off of that. That's amazing. Yeah. Right? yeah. Wow. You know, it makes sense that they would need to look at their organizational structure first, right? Because they're already there. They're extant. Mm-hmm. They have hundreds, if not thousands employees, right? Mm-hmm. And, yep. they, and that's a huge resource for them. How do it's they tap right. into that, right? How do That's they get right. that to be more nimble? Yeah, they're, they're kind of like a few advantages that if a company can figure it out that they have over smaller companies. Um, one is that they have those resources. Those and 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 you know and they have the, they have the resources. Another is that they have multiple skills. Like they, if if you're in a in, if you're in a large company and you want to learn about something, you can. There are different R and D departments that you can call. They're they're experts in different marketing techniques and stuff, all under one roof. Um, and another one is the ability to diversify bets. Um, like Jeff Bezos said, if you if you have a one in time chance of a of of a hundred times payoff, you've got to make that bet every time, but you got to be ready to lose nine times out of ten. Now, a, a more focused, smaller company has that one bet. They've got like a ninety percent chance of going out of business and a one percent chance of going getting a hundred times payoff. But what a, um, a a more scaled organization could do, and this is why what VCs do is you can almost think of them as as a you know, multi-portfolio uh, business, um, you know, what they can do is they can take 10 bets and now they've pretty much guaranteed themselves a 10 times payoff, right? Yeah. So if you can figure it they've out- hedged in a it, large but not all of them do a 10 times payoff. We have a lot no. of venture yeah. capitalists that, that listen yeah. to our podcast. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But- No, that's right. That's right. They have they, they 10 just, more yeah. chances than that they one They have 10 chance, more chances. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a, there's a big payoff, but, but, but competing is different. Um, because you have different sources, set, sets of advantages. So, yeah. Well, it sounds like higher is like competing yeah. within itself and without itself. No wonder yeah. it's growing. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and what it's doing now is kind of taking that model and expanding their ecosystem further. They did something really, uh, when COVID hit, um, one of their um, people, uh, I think he was like the marketing director for their um oven brands or something like that right and they have these cool ovens that can um that, that are programmable and um and so people weren't going to restaurants anymore and one of the main reasons one of the big dishes that people go to restaurants for in china is peking duck because it's very complicated to make uh most people can't make it at home so then they said let's create this ecosystem let's get some farmers who will give us ducks Let's get some chefs who will give us recipes. Let's get a transportation company that will rapidly ship food. And then what you do is you say, you want a Peking duck um, from the farmer, the chef gives you the, the recipe. It goes into your phone. When you arrives, you hit a QR code and then your app programs the oven, <laughs> how to cook it. And then you can make Peking duck at home. Oh man. You know? So I think that this idea, that mindset of like, we are an ecosystem internally, as you start opening it further and you start being better at, at engaging the ecosystem externally, um, that it, it just opens up even more opportunity. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these companies, so late adopters are the ones that, well, they they either, well, they're like blockbuster. They just don't, they don't adapt. They get commoditized. They go out of the market, right? I mean, that is the fear of a lot of these companies. What's yep. the biggest challenge for some of these companies and the reason why they don't confront transforming? I think... Is it they that can't just, wrap their wits around the organizational structure? They can't w- wrap their wits around the change, or is it just more fundamental than that? I think I think it's I think it rests. It, it's, it's I guess it's more fundamental, but it re- it has to do with that they can adapt at the lower levels of the organization, but they have more difficulty adapting at the higher levels. I find that leadership has a very flexible mind. There, they, when when you get to that level, you're a C level C suite person. Um, you know, you're just smart and creative, and you're curious. Um, Below that, somewhere in the middle, our members sometimes call it the permafrost or the steel, the the, the bar of steel that prevents the the people below who see that what what needs customers have and want to come up with creatives. They're they're, they're in touch with the market, but those ideas get hit uh, at the mid-level. It's almost like a government bureaucracy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's, that's what, yeah. So, um, in, in my research, I've found there's seven like main barriers. I've I interviewed 150 internal innovators and asked them, what's the big barrier that you see uh, trying to innovate from within an established company? And um, it, I, I made an acronym you know, to make it easy to remember. It's innovate with one N. Intent, they've stopped trying. Need, they don't understand the comp- what the company needs because they don't understand the strategy. Options, they don't create enough ideas. Value blockers is business model conflict that they can't design the business model so that it avoids conflict with the existing business model. Mm. Act is all about experimentation, which I know that you've, 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 you've surely covered, you know, that agile experimentation. Team is they can't pull the team together because those people are operating in different silos behind under different bosses and they don't get permission to collaborate. And then E is environment. Environment are those four things that I talked about before, leadership, structure, culture, and talent. Um, so you gotta, if you, that, if you follow the path of a successful internal innovation, you will find it goes from intent, need, options, value blockers, act, team, environment. And so you could find out where on that path are things getting blocked. And then you can say, okay, how do I remove that? Now, after you remove that, step three, you've removed that. They're generating lots of options. And then you find out, oh, they don't know how to experiment or they don't know how to do business model design, which is value blockers, right? Or they, they don't have permission to work with all across silos, which is team. You know what I mean? So it's not- Well, it sounds like you just fixed the whole organization. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. But I think you can, um, you know, it's probably like, I don't know, like, like um, this, this morning I- I had some time off this morning. And so I, I went to my eye doctor and I went to my dentist and, you know, it's like kind of taking care of your body, you know? And I asked the eye doctor, um, like she said, your eyes look great. And she said, and I said, well, how do I make sure that they stay healthy? And she said, like everything else, eat, eat lots of greens, eat lots of uh, kale and, you know, get that kind of deep green, you know, but she said, but that's true for your whole body. So, um, you know, but there's so many, the, the body has so many interconnected species. There's not one answer, right? It's true. Well, that's like our economy. Everything's interconnected, mm-hmm. intertwined. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a rippling effect. We saw that very apparent with yes. COVID. 
Yes. Right? Yes. Nothing is in a silo. Certain yeah. industries affect another industry, trickle down effect. And I, but I think, and I think that what you're getting at, I think is a really important point is that it just because the answer isn't, we, we want one answer. We want one pill that everyone will take and then it's solved. Right. Uh, but until way. we all like plug into the metaverse and become, you know, live in the matrix and, you know, we're no longer interacting in physical world. Um, uh, you know, f- until that time, I mean, it's a com- it's a complex, you know, set, set of interactions and there'll be a different solutions for different organizations. And that doesn't mean that we don't have an answer. It just means that, you know, the answer is multi-pronged. Multi-pronged and they have to take it off the avid need for it to be like some sort of automaticity and really take a look Mm -hmm. at it custom Mm -hmm. for them, right? Yes, 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 yes. We do, we have this weird avid need to have things, everything on automatic, right? Yes, we want it easy and yeah. Yeah, and actually it makes it harder. It does that because makes it, it, it harder. It, it makes it harder. Then we just yeah. try, you know, oh, this pill worked for him. Let me try that. This pill worked for her. Let me try that. And you just keep trying different pills. Oh, you know what we'll do? We'll do an incubation lab. Oh, we'll do a whatever team. We'll do, um, you know, a corporate venturing is the answer. No, it's cultural change is the norm. Oh, it's transformation is the norm. No, and and so um, it's, uh, and, and, and so we just kind of just flip around. But I don't think the answer is going to be any of those. There's not going to be the, there's not going to be one answer. No, I agree with you. And, and at the, I don't know, the bottom or the top of it, depending on which way you look, right, mm-hmm. as the foundation, uh, new language is the governing factor for taking that transformation yes. into the future, because you have to get adoption, right? Yes. It's yes. all about adoption. Yes, yeah. yes. Good lang- without the language, you won't even come up with the options. Without the options, you won't have you won't and you won't choose the right options, and so that's where that's where it all begins. Yeah. Do you it have a big success much. story, like a fun project that you worked on with I, that language? One, really one I like to tell. Liberal? Yeah, I think the one that I am most excited about. I don't want to say proud of because I didn't have much to do with with actually doing it. Um, but one that I can. There, there are some interesting ones that I can't talk about. Um, that you can't th- talk about. That I can't talk about. Yeah, I know you that's know, always the case, for, right? I know. <laughs> Like we do a lot in like, I don't know, with defense contractors and big technology companies and investment companies and things. But so one of our clients um, is Macmillan. They are one of the four large um, uh, publishers. And um, they were worried about self-published authors because they were increasingly self-published authors were saying, hey, we, we, don't, we don't think that we need to go with a traditional publisher. Um, and so I can just put a PDF on Amazon. And so they were seeing that this was, you know, uh, happening and they, they thought if, if this continues, then, you know, our business model would be, you know, effectively obsolete. Yeah. So, um, going back to that term of, um, coordinating uncoordinated, they said, let's look at it from that lens. How could we coordinate would be self-published authors. And so they came up with an idea. This woman, Jean Faywall, came up with it. She, you, you probably don't know her if you're not in publishing, but if you know um, the Babysitters Clubs Club or you know Goosebumps, um, then you know her work. She's a, a 
brilliant creative editor that has created a lot of these platforms for um, Macmillan wow. and prior writers. She's a very creative woman. And she came up with this idea, um, eventually becomes this thing called um, Thrive Reads, a uh, Fierce Reads, excuse me, Fierce Reads. And it's a platform where would-be self-published authors, um, pr- particularly in the young, young adult genre, they submit a manuscript. But it's really radical that, you know, a very counter to the norms of publishing is the manuscript isn't even done yet. And yet it's available online for people to read. And, you know, that cuts against, you know, centuries of norms of publishing. And then they coordinate this community of readers that love this genre and read a lot. And then they create this like conversation between the readers and the the writer and the readers are kind of co-creating, if you will, the final manuscript and the manuscript is being designed by the audience for the audience, right? And then they then the audience rates these manuscripts according to heat, tears, laughs, and thrills. They might have a different schema, but that's what they that's what they had, um, you know, when I worked with them. And then it becomes a dancing with the stars competition. Top ten becomes the top five, becomes the top three. McMillan picks the winner, and the winner, of course, wins a publishing contract. Wow. And what they found is they had never had a winner turn down the publishing contract, right? So they've created a platform for these self-published authors to find their audience, and they have put themselves in front of that disruption. So it's wind in their sails, right? So- um, And what was the new language around? It was from coordinating the uncoordinated. Power comes from not control, not controlling the IP- um, not owning the content, right? Not content is king. What if power came from coordinating? Who it's kind of like an open source platform for publishing. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. It's actually pretty brilliant. Yeah, 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 it really is. Yeah, and it gives the writers all the market research that they need to know how their book is <laughs> going to be successful. Yeah. So it's a home run for Macmillan. Because yeah. by the time they publish the book, I mean, it's going to go, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. It's already yeah. it's guaranteed. It's already got, it's already proven. Um, it, in, in a way, it is, it is that agile prototyping, but in publishing. Book, yeah. Book what a writing. fun success story. It is. Yeah. So Kaihan, how did you, how did you get onto this path? What, what have you been like? Have you always yeah. been this really strategic thinker and, you know, going back to ancient texts and how did you get along this path? I was, I was really, you know, it was, I don't know, 1980 something living in Philadelphia. My dad comes home from Japan and he brings back some Japanese books on like Miyamoto's Musashi's, um, uh, Miyamoto Musashi's book of five rings or, um, Zen and the art of, uh, um, motorcycle maintenance and those kind of things. Anyway, it just turned me on to kind of the Asian writing. So then I read um, the, uh, I, I, I just read that genre. And um, and I started getting into st- in strategy, Sun Tzu and the 36 stratagems and the, the romance of the, of the set of the, of the three kingdoms and things like that. And I just, I, I became interested in strategy for that reason. Um, I then um, become an investment banker. I then go back to business school and then I work at McKinsey and three or four years in, I published my first book and um, and I, I had a choice if I wanted to actually get behind the book. And so I decided to quit my job and, um, and just try to promote my book. And what was and that, that book? And, and I know you've written five books or more. Yeah, That right? one is called the art of the advantage. Okay. 
That was the art. That of was your first book. That was my first book. And that was that like the, the pivotal moment for you where you were like, that's it. I'm going in this direction. Yeah. But I didn't know how, for how long I was going to go in this direction. I said, I don't know if I'm ever going to write another book. And so if I have a chance, like, let me just take a risk and just quit my job so that I can do everything I can to try to make this book successful. Cause I probably won't write another book. Um, and so, yeah. And then I just started speaking and anyway, it was, it's, it's a long story, but um, my speaking career right now is very full and robust and profitable, but for many years, it was, it felt, I felt like a, um, you know, like a, a comedian in the early years, they say you, so you have to spend huh? seven years, like just begging for stage time. Um, <laughs> I put in my seven years begging for stage time. Um, so yeah, so it was that's, a seven year famine and now yeah. you're like feasting, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, I introduced you as a keynote speaker from the beginning and you said it's very profitable. What are you speaking most about today? Um, mostly about what we're talking about here. Um, how to be disruptor, not disrupted. What are these five emerging patterns that um, you need to use to get your, your head around things? It's, it's, it's usually for um, industry associations or corporations like, you know, talk to a big one of the big car manufacturers, I'm talking to one of the big oil and gas companies, and I've done things for um, the Association of Landscape Professionals, the Association of, of Union Contractors. And, you know, and the overall thing is exactly what you're saying is we're looking around and we know things are changing and COVID has really you know, heightened the, the, the changes. And we know that we exponentially need to accelerated yes. it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. I cut you off, but yeah, no, exponentially accelerated and they know it. Yes. And they know it and they know it and they need new thinking to create new possibilities. What industries do you see from the speaking engagements that you're getting and who you're consulting that are really in need of change of Oh, this. need of change. Oh, so I mean, so many, but, you know, I think financial services is in, in real need of change because um, they've lost so much trust. Amen. Right. And yet if they do it right, it, it can be a gift to society, you know, to teach people financial literacy, to help people save, to have, you know, retire, you know, with a life, you know, and pay for kids' colleges and things like that. So and much And trust good stuff. their financial advisor. I mean, right, right. banking, but right, trust right. their financial advisor, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 Financial but, services. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I agree with you on that. But bring up any big financial brand and people will think of the Scrooge, you know, it's they, they, very few are, you know, are able to kind of really authentically own, but you know, like um, the, um, you know, lemonade insurance, which went public in yes. the last day. That's, I think, an example. They, their, their mission is to transform insurance into a social good, and fundamentally, it should be a social good. It's us coming together and saying, if something happens to you, Carla, let's all pitch in money, and we're all going to take care of you, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, these health sharing plans that cropped up, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting that lemonade did that. I do agree with you on that. Yeah, and that's also a change in language, right? It is a complete is. change in language from the way insurance has been done. Yes. Yes, exactly. I like so how you said I insurance. Have, what? 
I like that you said insurance. Well, that's because I'm from the South. I'm south. And my wife is from the South as well. And uh, she says insurance. We don't say she insurance. We downtown. Say insurance. And she says ambulance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So what are your crazy passions outside of work? Do you have any? I love to cook mostly. And um, I have like on, on social, I got my businesses kind of Twitter and LinkedIn, but my personal is um, Facebook and um, Instagram. And, and, and now when I go like to a family reunion or friends or whatever, people who know me from that side, um, they're always asking me about my dishes. Yeah. So, so what's the favorite thing you have to cook? Love to cook so many things, but um, what do your kids love? Um, they love my mom's from Bangladesh, and so I do do a lot of like Indian food. One of their favorite things is just it's not really fancy though, but it's, it's they call it yellow rice. It's basically a kind of tilapia um, curry um, curry chicken. Just big um, old comfort food, right? Yeah, that's that. Yeah, but I love to barbecue. I'm famous for my ribs. Um, I'll, I'll come down to um, to Texas and and, uh, yeah. and see how they stand up down there. But I'm kind <laughs> do of you slow cook ribs. them? How do you do them? Do you smoke them? What do you do? Um, I first, I, you know, I first like dry rub, marinate them for 24 hours. Um, Good for and you. I I try not to slow cook them. Or I've sous vide them before, cook them slow in the in the in the oven first before putting on the grill. But for me, it's a little bit like cheating. So instead, it's just low and slow on the grill paying close attention, keep turning it so it doesn't burn, put two layers of, um, of, of, um, of uh, um, uh, barbecue sauce on them. You know, the first one gets caramelized and burns, and then the second one is wet. So you got wet and you got caramelized, and then you got the, yeah, that's- Sounds that's, delicious. Yeah. Delicious. What's the most elaborate dish you've ever made? Oh, wow. For my, um, for my 50th birthday, which was last year. Um, yeah, I had friends over and my birthday gift to myself was being able to cook for them. So here we, we had um, this kind of lamb that was marinated uh, Indian style in, in, Ooh. in, in, um, coffee. And then I created this thing that was like, looked like a, um, coral reef that was made out of bread. Um, and then we had as like a palate cleanser, the appetizer was radishes, pickled radishes that were in um, a little flower pot. And it looked like they were in dirt, but the dirt was dehydrated black olives. And so <laughs> it looked this. like exactly. And then you put a little bit of dressing and you dip and, and, uh, and like that. So that, that was maybe my most elaborate. That's meal. amazing. That is fun. amazing. So much fun. Wow. And an edible napkin as well. You had an edible napkin? What did yeah. you make of that? Of? Um, just, just rice paper, but then you put flower petals in it and then you put a little bit of flavoring like garlic and onion. And then when you seal it and you cut it, it looks like a flowery um, piece of fabric, but you eat it. That's amazing. Was, that was fun. Yeah, that was fun. Good for you. Good for you. But that was a fun birthday. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So where can people find you? I think the best would be find me on LinkedIn and look for me on my website, K-A-I-H-A-N.net, Kaihan.net. And what about books? What books do you want people to read that are really going to help them after they listen to this? I think, you know, from our conversation here, I think it's, I'll think the competition and we have a new edition of it. That's going to be released in early 
2021 in February, March, 2021. So that will be out. I'd say, I'll think the competition is a place to start. If you're, if your view is like, I'm an, I'm working in an incumbent organization. I want to be an innovator. Um, then it's driving innovation from within. Got it. So outthink the competition. That sounds good. And then driving, what's the other one? Driving innovation from within. Driving innovation from within. Great. Kayan, thank you. Thank you. This has been a ton of fun. So much fun. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.